lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, this show made me a little starstruck because I got the chance to talk succulents with the queen of succulents, Deborah Lee Baldwin. Deborah has a new book out. It's a second edition of her book, Designing with Succulents. In fact, it has so much new material, it could well be considered an entirely new book altogether. If you're a fan of succulents, and it seems that they've justifiably charmed every living, breathing gardener on planet Earth, then today's show will be a total joy for you. Designing with Succulents with the Queen, Deborah Lee Baldwin. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out like I always do by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. If you've just found the show, a special welcome to you. If you're returning, thanks for coming back. And I always say that I hope you're listening to a bunch of gardening podcasts. This week, it was kind of fun because Susan Harris of Garden Rant wrote an updated article about all of the gardening podcasts that she's happily discovered over the past year. It wasn't that long ago, just back in 2010 when Susan had written a post remarking on the slim pickings when it came to gardening podcasts. And she complained that there were only two podcasts about gardening on her little iPod. But today there are more and more gardening podcasts. And Susan reports that the quality is awesome. So here are some of Susan's favorites. In addition to still growing, I was tickled to be on the list, she included cultivating Place by Jennifer Jewell, one of my personal favorites, Deborah Prinzing's Slow Flowers, and of course, Margaret Roach's A Way to Garden. In addition to two new podcasts, one by Joe Lample called The Joe Gardner Podcast, and Plant Rama by Ellen Zakos and C.L. Fornari. And I just uploaded that one onto my playlist. So this week when I'm driving around, I'll be catching up on all of the Plant Rama episodes, or at least as many as I can. Anyway, if you get a chance to check some of those out, if you haven't listened yet, go ahead and do so. I think gardening podcasts are one of the best ways to grow and learn as a gardener. So go ahead, do what I do, load up your playlists ahead of time before you get into the car, and then when you get into the car, just hit play and enjoy the ride. All right, I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for this show, The Still Growing Podcast. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show, and these folks are from all over the world with all different skill levels. And you can find it on Facebook by typing the name of our group, The Still Growing Podcast Group, into the search bar on Facebook. So the next time you're in Facebook, 
just head on up to the search bar and type in still growing podcast group and the listener community for the show will just pop up at the top of the search results and then just click on it and request to join. Now, there are a number of benefits to joining the group. First, you get access to all of the garden articles that I curate for you. Second, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. And this week, we do have a giveaway. Marta McDowell said she would give away two copies of her latest book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And our winners are Tim Rachel Beachy and Julie Heinen. So congratulations, you guys. Go ahead and private message me your contact information, including your email and physical address. And Marta will get those books out to you right away. The other reasons to join the group include the fact that you get to interact with guests that have been on the show. So Marta McDowell is in our group. Last week's episode or the week before that, Barbara Pleasant is in our group of Homegrown Pantry. And today's guest, Deborah Lee Baldwin, is joining the group as well. Finally, the content that I share in the listener community is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. Let's welcome new members to the group this week. Vita Marianne, Barbie Corbridge, Kevin Nash, Mary Hockenberry Meyer, Alyssa Letourneau, Mike's Green Garden, Anna McMinn, Aaron France, Robin Schultz, Carol Michelle, Christy Hines, Sid Haynes, Laura Johnson, Steve Weatherby, Janet Wells Sims, and Loretta Orsburn. Welcome, you guys. Well, this week in the Facebook group, I want to start out by saying thank you for participating in my listener survey. I was so thrilled with the response, and your input will help me make sure that the show continues to be very listener-directed. So that's wonderful. This week in the group, listeners shared beautiful pictures of their garden. One in particular stood out to me, and it was from Deborah Anderson Laterza. She took cuttings from her garden and then placed them inside an old tomato can. So the tomato can had this gorgeous yellow label with beautiful red tomatoes on it. And Deborah picked flowers and arranged them. They were beautiful red zinnias, looks like, in addition to basil. It was a gorgeous bouquet, and it perfectly fit. And I told her I didn't think Country Living Magazine could have done any better. So great job, Deborah. John Brian Silverio posted a great reminder, and that is not to take down your fall garden just now because the birds and the migratory butterflies are still relying on those plants for nectar. So if you're someone that cuts the garden back in preparation for winter, see if you can hold off a little bit longer. That would greatly help our butterflies, pollinators, bees, birds, etc., and speaking of pollinators, that's what is showing up so prominently in many of the photos of listeners' gardens. Beautiful pictures of flowers, edibles, ornamentals in their garden covered with pollinators. It's great to see those images. So thanks for sharing those. Now, if you have questions or comments regarding the show, you can call the phone number for the show at 865-333-GROW or 865 333 
888-447-4769. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. And it's made up of a dozen different segments, from updates on past guests to articles featuring fascinating folks in the world of horticulture that I'd love to chat with. And that's something I call the Dream Guest Segment. I also cover news and information on special topic areas like sustainability and science. And then the other segments are really designed to honor the commitment of the show to helping you and your garden grow. And they are the how-to DIY segment, the continuing ed segment, the plant spotlight, shopping, recipes, inspiration, and quotables. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay pretty abreast of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. Let's kick things off with the guest update. I've got two guest updates for you. The first is from past guest Peg Riccio. Peggy wrote an article called Basil, 15 Uses Beyond Pesto, and the Herb Society of America blog picked it up and ran with it. Now, so many of you enjoyed the Basil Mania episode back in 573. Here's a way you can continue to grow and learn about basil in Peg's article, 15 Uses Beyond Pesto. Great work, Peg. Also in the guest update segment is this post by Toronto Gardens with Helen Battersby. This one caught my attention because it's all about those painted plants that you'll see, especially if you're walking around in big box stores. Over the summer, I ran into this. I would see painted succulents. I kid you not. And it kind of makes me a little sad and a little upset to see spray painted flowers in vivid colors like an unnatural blue or purple or pink. It just feels wrong to me. Anyway, Toronto Gardens has the same sentiment because the title of this blog post is called The Evil That Is Painted Plants. So if this fires you up, you'll enjoy this article by Toronto Gardens. In Sustainability This Week is a great article by Jane Metzger, and it's called Adding Yarrow to Your Materia Medica, Your Backyard Apothecary. And I love how Jane starts out her post. Here's what she wrote. Yarrow grows freely in my gardens, and I encourage it to do so, as much for its beauty as its beneficial uses. While the blooms have just gone by in my garden, the harvest is drying on the herb rack and macerating into a potent tincture in the herb cupboard. And while yarrow has long been a favored herb for me, I feel that there is plenty more that I have yet to understand. So, 
I added a few more notes and observations from the harvest, and I spent some time browsing my herb books for more insights. And then Jane goes on to share those in this very detailed post. So if you're curious about growing more yarrow and then harvesting it for its medicinal use, this is a go-to post. In continuing ed, Deborah Silver in her fabulous blog shared a great post simply called Hydrangea Time, and she writes all about her passion for limelight hydrangea. In Deborah's mind, limelight hydrangea is the very best hydrangea for planting in your garden. Beautiful shots here of limelight in Deborah's garden. Also in Continuing Ed, the English Garden blog shared a great post on how to grow cacti, five easy steps. And even better, they shared six cacti that are perfect for beginners. Now, later on in today's episode, you'll hear Deborah talk about succulents, and of course, cactus are part of the succulent family. But Deborah is looking to the future, and she really believes that cactus are the new frontier when it comes to new fads or new passions in gardening. So start to get ahead of this trend a little bit by reading up on cactus. All right, in the how-to DIY segment is a wonderful post that was shared by Pith and Vigor. I saw it on their Twitter feed, and it's actually from the Plant Hunter blog, and it's simply called How to Make an Insect Hotel. This one is very clever. They use recycled bits and pieces from your kitchen and backyard, notably a soup can, bamboo stakes, and wire. This one is so easy, even the kids can do it. You basically empty the food can, you cut the bamboo stakes into pieces that are the same length as the depth of the can, and then you stack the bamboo pieces inside the can with the open ends facing out until the can is full. And then you wrap wire around the can to form a loop so that the insect hotel can be suspended. And that's basically it. It's just so super cute and a great project for kids. Rounding out the DIY segment is this fun post from Gardenista called How to Garden Like a Frenchman, 10 Ideas to Steal from a Parisian Courtyard. This one's by Michelle Slatala. It totally caught my eye. In addition to saying how to add layers to your garden and mixing and matching, it talks about potting up a woodland, incorporating small trees that like to thrive in pots and large containers. They encourage us to try Japanese maples. Many varieties of Acer can be pruned and shaped aggressively to make sure they don't outgrow a courtyard garden. And then the other tip I really liked is it talks about installing drainage underfoot. In the example they give, they show how permeable non-skid decking feels good underfoot and also prevents water from pooling under your plants, which is never good. The Essential Herbal blog wrote a great post about garlic called Viva La Stinking Rose. And of course, it's that time of year when we all need to be thinking about planting garlic. So that one is very timely. And then there was also a great post by Commonwealth Herbs. And this one was about chamomile. And I love the way this post started out. It said, 
I once had a client who said, and don't you go telling me I need something stupid like chamomile. This is a serious situation. And all I could think was, wow, you actually do need chamomile. And then it cautions, don't let its common availability fool you. Chamomile is gentle, but strong and tremendously effective. Listener Marie Flint wrote in, my mother used to call it goose grass. Ladies of the past generations used it to soothe the tummies of colicky babies. The herb is very gentle, has a somewhat sweet fragrance, and makes a great facial when a handful of dried flowers are placed in steaming water. In a potpourri pillow, the herbs aid sleep. And then she wrote, no, I haven't read the article. So Marie is up on her chamomile wisdom. Good job, Marie. In the news this week, I shared a picture of the two-ounce stamp. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it is a looker. It's gorgeous. It's this beautiful bouquet of peachy-colored roses and berries. It's just beautiful. Also in the news, my Chicago Botanic, the Chicago Botanic Garden, shared a great post called, Is the Tomato a Vegetable or a Fruit? Even the Supreme Court had an opinion. And when I introduced this to the group, I wrote this in the status update. Let's just say that growing tomatoes can be taxing in more ways than one. Now, that headline gives you a clue as to why the Supreme Court was getting involved. And here's the interesting story. There is a Supreme Court case, specifically Nix versus Hedden in 1893, in which the court ruled that the tomato is, for purposes of taxation, a vegetable. Evidently, in the spring of 1896, the Nix family made their living importing tomatoes into New York City from the West Indies. Based on the Tariff Act of 1883, the New York Port tax collector assessed a duty on these imported tomatoes. Now, the Tariff Act required a 10% duty on vegetables in their natural state. But the Nix family contended a tomato is a fruit, botanically speaking, and should not be taxed as a vegetable. The New York tax collector was unmoved by this argument and forced the family to pay the tax, though he did record that the tax was paid under protest. And that was ultimately the beginning of the conflict for this court case. The Nix family ultimately sued the tax collector. The case was heard by the Circuit Court of the Southern District of New York. The case primarily consisted of entering into testimony the dictionary definitions of fruit and vegetable. And the court sided with the tax collector. The Nixes appealed and somewhat amazingly, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. They registered their judgment on May 10, 1893. In his opinion, Justice Horace Gray of Massachusetts freely admitted that, botanically speaking, tomatoes are the fruit of the vine. But he made a distinction between the common language of the people and the botanical definition. He noted that tomatoes are usually served at dinner, in, with, 
or after the soup, fish, or meats, so essentially part of the main meal, and not like fruits, which are generally eaten as dessert. He even cited from the Supreme Court precedent. In 1889, the court held that, again for tax purposes, white beans, which definitively are seeds, should be taxed as vegetables and not classified as seeds, which were, of course, exempt from taxation. In that case, Justice Bradley of New Jersey wrote of white beans, we do not see why they should be classified as seeds any more than walnuts should be classified as seeds. Both are seeds in the language of botany or natural history, but not in commerce, nor in common parlance. So kids, if you're listening, add that to your tomato trivia. You can wow your teachers in school with that information. In the dream guest segment is someone my mom actually found for me. She forwarded this article to me that was featured in the Chaska Herald newsroom in early September, and it was called No Old and Bold Mushroom Hunters, and it's by Stan Tequila. Now, Stan has a wonderful website. Let me pull it up here. It's the Nature Smart website. So just go to naturesmart.com. Stan is a naturalist, a wildlife photographer, and a writer. And he's the originator of all of these wonderful state-specific field guides, such as the ones for birds and wildflowers as well as trees. So if you've ever looked at a specific state field guide like wildflowers of Minnesota or trees of Minnesota or birds of Wisconsin, that kind of thing, that's probably in large part due to Stan. Now, in particular, what I loved about what Stan wrote about the mushroom hunters is his explanation of this very popular quote. Here's what he said. There's an old saying that goes like this. There are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old and bold mushroom hunters. So clever. In fact, in Stan's article, right at the very end, he says, by the way, everyone who has ever eaten a deadly mushroom reported that they tasted great. Unlike what you see in the movies and TV, when you eat a deadly mushroom, you don't suddenly drop over dead. In fact, it's a long, drawn-out process of many days and weeks. The first symptoms don't show up until 48 to 72 hours, two to three days after you eat the mushroom. This is because most of these toxins will kill your liver, and the first symptoms occur when your liver starts to fail. The only treatment for this is a liver transplant, something Stan, of course, does not recommend. Anyway, he gives a really, really great overview of hunting for mushrooms, the best time and the best places to look, and how to source wild edible mushrooms. I thought this was a wonderful article, so thanks, Mom, for finding it and forwarding it to me. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and that's why Stan Tequila made the Dream Guest segment this week. In Science This Week, the New York Times shared a great article that was called, Can You Pick the Bees Out of This Insect Lineup? 
And when I shared it with the group, I wrote, a bee or not a bee? That is a good question. So in this article, you have to imagine that they show a picture of all of these different insects. Now, some look very much like what we think of when we think of a bee. Then others look like they could fall into completely different insect categories. They look like they could almost be grasshoppers or even flies. Now, this is an interactive post, so when you get this article, you have to click on the bees in order to see the rest of the article. And the whole point of this article is that in addition to trying to save our pollinators, we need to do a better job of identifying just who our pollinators are. In this article, Joseph Wilson, an evolutionary ecologist at Utah State University, said, we realized there was a huge misunderstanding or lack of knowledge about most kinds of bees. Everyone knows that bees are good, but even though they know that, most people had no idea how many kinds of bees there are. I really enjoyed this post. I loved the interactive quality of it. If you have kids or if you're teaching about bees, this post in particular should be part of your curriculum. It's great. There were a number of recipes this week. There was a fantastic tarragon and cashew pesto recipe that I absolutely fell in love with. It's from Dunk and Crumble. So just to recap, the name of that blog, Dunk and Crumble, both of those terms refer to cookies. You dunk your cookie in milk. And then, of course, the saying, that's the way the cookie crumbles. So the blog is called Dunk and Crumble, and they are responsible for the fantastic post on the tarragon and cashew pesto. Love that one. Then the kitchen.com had a great post called Do This for Thicker, Richer, Homemade Kitchen Stock. So if you want thicker, richer chicken stock or chicken broth, here's what you do. Add a touch of acid. White wine or vinegar will do the trick. It also cautions that you can go ahead and use something like lemon juice, although that will affect the flavor more. So if you're just looking for thicker, richer chicken stock, stick to adding white wine or vinegar. Great tip. The Backyard Patch shared a great dressing recipe. This one was for a creamy Parmesan dressing. It's a weekend recipe that they recommended last weekend. The author, Marcy, wrote this about this recipe. She said, this special recipe is fast, but worth making from fresh Parmesan and lemon basil. It's perfect on a lettuce or greens salad, but it's exceptionally good on tomatoes, and it's thick enough to use as a dip. I loved it. In Shopping This Week is a great new book out by Carol Langton and Rose Ray. It's their new book called House of Plants. House of Plants is a practical and beautiful guide to how to love and care for your succulents, cacti, tropical, and air plants. So a fitting book for this episode as well. These indoor plants are handsome, hardy, and perfect for urban living. And this book is a comprehensive companion. Great buy. You can get it on Amazon for under $20. And the cover's gorgeous. House of Plants. 
In inspiration this week, there were some beautiful images of incredible flower crowns of old Ukrainian wedding photos. This was featured in Atlas Obscura. It was making the rounds again. I first saw it last year when it was published in August. Now, what I especially loved about this post is not only these beautiful images of these old wedding photos, but the fact that they tried to recreate these amazing crowns with flowers in addition to the costumes. So basically recreate the entire wedding photo to great effect. I loved how they turned out. Very, very impressive. In quotables this week, I tried to pick quotes that had some connection to the topic of today's show, succulents. Here we go. The first two are by Ralph Waldo Emerson. What is a weed, a plant whose virtues have never been discovered? Then, the vegetable life does not content itself with casting from the flower or the tree a single seed but it fills the air and earth with a prodigality of seeds that if thousands perish, thousands may plant themselves, that hundreds may come up, that tens may live to maturity, that at least one may replace the parent. Here's an Afghan proverb. A little water is a sea to an ant. Here's one by Vera Nazarian in her book, The Perpetual Calendar of Inspiration. The cactus thrives in the desert while the fern thrives in the wetland. The fool will try to plant them in the same flower box. The florist will sigh and add a wall divider and proper soil to both sides. The grandparent will move the flower box halfway out of the sun. The child will turn it around properly so that the fern is in the shade and not the cactus. The moral of the story? Kids are smart. Finally, this one by H. Jackson Brown Jr. Hope is not a resting place, but a starting point, a cactus not a cushion. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community for the show in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. The next time you're in Facebook, just search for Still Growing Podcast Group. Our group will pop up. Just request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, Designing with Succulents with the Queen of Succulents, Deborah Lee Baldwin. Today we're talking about Deborah's newest book. It's simply called Designing with Succulents. It's the celebratory 10th anniversary, completely revised and updated second edition of the very book that launched a global interest in succulents. And by the way, it's also how Deborah earned her moniker as the Queen of Succulents. 
Now, this book is gloriously illustrated with 400 gorgeous and inspiring photos, basically a brand new book, and it encapsulates the essentials of the original along with a decade's worth of appealing and innovative ideas. Now, Deborah considers this book to be the culmination of her career, and that's saying something because Deborah has accomplished an awful lot. As Australian nurseryman and author Adela Capitani said in his address to the Biennial Convention of the Cactus and Succulent Society of America, The growing interest in succulents on the part of the gardening public can be attributed primarily to one person, Deborah Lee Baldwin. Deborah is a journalist. She researches her topics very thoroughly, getting firsthand accounts from folks growing and working with succulents and corresponding with succulent experts from around the world. Incredibly, Deborah personally photographed the work of great designers. She did about 80% of the photographs for this book. She takes pictures with world-class designers and the best of creative homeowners, showing the cleverness and creativity of these profoundly enthusiastic succulent gardeners, many of whom used the first edition of Deborah's book as a starting point. Deborah's latest book, this second edition, highlights the very best designs of everyday gardeners and professionals, sharing innovations, tips, and ideas, everything that's new and exciting in the world of succulents. This book has a whole section in the back of plants that are perfect for your own succulent garden. Succulent expert blogger photographer Gerhard Bach said this in his review of the second edition of Designing with Succulents. Sometimes the second edition of a popular book is little more than a cosmetic update, maybe featuring a new foreword, a different page design, and some new photos. Not so here. This second edition of Designing with Succulents may share the same basic organization as the first edition. The first half covers design principles. The second half showcases the best plants for a variety of applications. But the nuts and bolts of this book have been completely reworked. And I agree with Gerhardt, and I am a huge fan of this book. This one is staying in my office. Chatting with Deborah makes for a lovely interview because she is a conscious competent when it comes to succulents. She knows what she knows, and she's crystal clear when it comes to sharing her expertise and passion for succulents. Deborah specializes in showing how top designers use architectural, water-wise, and easy-care succulents in a wide variety of creative applications. Fleshy or spiky, minuet or ginormous, succulents come in all sorts of growth habits, colors, and shapes. In Deborah's revised edition, you get two super useful supplements, one that lets you choose plants by specific characteristics, such as size, color, or texture, and then one that profiles the best companion plants for succulents. 
So whether you're just discovering the world of succulents or a succulent aficionado determined to collect as many species as you can, today's show will fan the fires of your passion for succulents. Let's set the roses, hydrangea, and wildflowers aside today and get down and dirty with the queen of succulents. Here's Deborah Baldwin and Designing with Succulents. Welcome, Deborah. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's a treat to be on your show. Tell me everything. Tell me how this book came about, because I know that even though this is a second edition, it's largely all new material. It is. Well, you know, the first edition of Designing with Succulents came out in 2007, and as I was researching that uh, prior to its you know, production, I had a hard time finding great succulent gardens to shoot. I would go up and down streets in high-end neighborhoods of Southern California, and if I'd see a succulent in somebody's front yard and it looked good, I'd do a drive-by shooting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the, you know, there were very few landscape designers who were specializing in succulents at the time. And, well, I have to give credit to my editor at Sunset Magazine because I was a journalist covering San Diego primarily for Sunset Magazine at the time, and I was covering general gardening. I went around and I would go to all the gardens that were on tour. I'd go the day before the tour so I didn't have to shoot around the lady in the red sweater. And I would show my editor, Kathy Brenzel, at Sunset Magazine, these great gardens. And they could have been anything, tropicals, bonsai, you name it. And one day she said to me, Deborah, you have shown me so many great photos of succulent gardens that you should do a book. And that's how it all came together. But suddenly I was scrambling to to find even more, even better, uh, more comprehensive, more creative, the best and the, and the brightest of all the succulent designers and how they were using these plants in the, in the garden. And so fast forward 10 years, and I had more material than I knew what to do with. There is so much going on now, primarily in the banana belt for succulents, which is coastal California from the Bay Area South and Southern California. That's where the plants grow best in the ground, um, which is not to say you can't have succulents anywhere on the planet. You can. You just have to be a little bit more careful about how you grow them, how you protect them from temperature extremes and too much rain or too much heat. But anyway, so to get back to now we've had this revolution, this phenomenon of succulents. They, they're everywhere. You see them everywhere. You see them in bridal bouquets. You see them as table centerpieces. You see them in movies. You see them sitting on the tabletops of talk shows. So it all sort of started back then. And modesty aside, I have been credited as the person who started the whole succulent phenomenon. There's an Australian expert, Attila Capitani, (laughs) who said in one of the biennial conventions of the Cactus and Succulent Society of America, that he credits me for the rising interest in succulents in the United States and beyond. So I worked hard to get those few 
adequate, but not necessarily wow, photos back in 2006 for a book that was coming out in 07. And I didn't slow down after the book came out. Every time I had a chance to visit a great succulent garden, I was there with my camera. And I still do that. It's become automatic. And I think that's a terrific way to communicate the feel, the three-dimensional feel of a garden is ideal through video. And I do have over 200 videos on YouTube and just past 3 million views uh, with uh, 14, a little bit more than 14,000 subscribers to my YouTube channel. So it's been a process when Timber Press told me that they wanted a uh, celebratory 10th anniversary second edition of Designing with Succulents. I wasn't surprised. I knew that it was it was time that so much had happened that we did need to update the original edition. However, I had no idea how much work would be involved. And I said, well, okay, you know, I'm busy. I'm out there uh, making my videos, giving presentations. I'm on, I have a huge social media presence. I'm doing a, a lot to help get the word out about my existing books. So really, do you want me to disappear for a year and go underground and focus on updating uh, the, the first edition so we can get a second edition out there? And they were wonderful. They said, well, you know, you've written a lot. You've done a lot already uh, with blog posts on your website, all of this other stuff, all these articles I've written. We'll assign you a developmental editor. Lorraine Anderson, I can't say enough wonderful things about her. So Lorraine's job was to pull all these things together, take the original manuscript that was 10 years old, and massage everything together and come out with a second edition. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, that's a great way to go. And so I signed a contract agreeing that I would meet these series of deadlines that were basically over a year's time, but I didn't see it as taking a lot of my time. Well, Jennifer, let me tell you, <laughs> I caught into it. I mean, I was reading, you know, the the edited version, and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, oh, no. You know, it, it just needs so much more work. It It has... Uh, it, it needs more cohesiveness. It needs to emphasize certain things. There are things that have happened that need to be illustrated. I think what really made me realize the need for an entirely new book was the photos. Mm. I mean, Lorraine was working. She figured, oh, well, you know, uh, we'll we'll use the photos that are already in the book, and then Deborah will just add 100 more. Sure. Oh, no. No, I started looking at those old photos, and I was thinking, no, 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 the, the book, the readers, they merit updated photos. Well, once you start yanking out 300 original photos and adding an extra 100, you start really having different text. Now, I would say that the second edition has about 15% of the best bits of the first edition. It's not like we didn't keep any of it, but major changes in photography, which extrapolated into major changes in text, which meant that for me to meet those deadlines, <laughs> I padded down the hallway in my bedroom slippers before <laughs> dawn. I 
Some days I didn't even get dressed. I neglected my husband, my dog, my garden, and myself. As with all my books, I gained a pound per chapter. Oh, God. It's baby weight. I've lost it since. Oh, my gosh. and, And Lorraine was such a wonderful hand holder, and she didn't realize uh, that what she thought she was pretty much finished with was just the beginning. Yeah. And an awful lot of emails went back and forth. Uh, she's like a, my sister now. I mean, we even have like almost the same birthday. And we've decided that we're going to go hiking in the Pacific Northwest uh, to celebrate the release of the book. And she's she's an expert in where to hike in the Pacific Northwest, so I'm looking oh. forward to that. And I figure if she's my age, I can keep up with her, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the plan, right? We only go hiking with people our age or older, so... <laughs> I know. So, so anyway, it, it came together beautifully. I have to say, it was a team effort. Uh, I... You know, I'm primarily a journalist. I'm a horticulturist. In fact, I was honored by the San Diego Horticultural Society as their 2017 Horticulturist of the Year. Oh. So I feel I can call myself a horticulturist. I'm also a photographer, a, a videographer, but I'm primarily a journalist. Words are my little buddies. That's where that that's my comfort zone is working with words combining words with photos, and communicating. And a, a book, especially with a major publisher like Timber Press, Timber Press is the top publisher of gardening books in the United States. They produce a very high-quality product, and it's a true honor and a privilege to work with Timber Press. I love Timber Press. Uh, they're, they're accessible. They're real genuine people who work there, but they have a total commitment to excellence. And there was a lot of hand-holding that went on, especially with Lorraine, the developmental editor. Uh, But once the manuscript was finished and ready to turn in, I had some misgivings because being primarily a journalist and secondarily a horticulturist, I thought, I want this to be the ultimate book on succulents and using them in aesthetic ways. What if I've got something wrong? I can't know it all. Mm -hmm. So I had the plant descriptions proofread by the leading expert on succulent plants in the United States. He's on the board of the Cactus and Succulent Society of America. He is curator of a collection at the Ruth Bancroft Garden uh, near San Francisco. He helped with Johanna Silver's marvelous book, The Bold Dry Garden, which is about the Ruth Bancroft Garden. And that is Brian Kemble. Now, Brian is very low-key. He's a plant geek. He was sort of bemused when I approached him. But, oh, my gosh, that man. <laughs> I am going to have to... I'm going to have to separately release our email exchanges because this man is totally up on nomenclature. And I would say, I don't care if they've changed the name of this. This is how it's sold in nurseries. This is how I remember it. I'll never remember that ridiculously long, you know, totally different name. I'm going to call it 
Oh, it's old name because I can. <laughs> <laughs> and and he would be so diplomatic in oh. his response, and he would gently remind me that there's a reason for nomenclature change. <laughs> And that people like me have the opportunity to get it right. Yes. And so maybe it's worth doing. Just consider it, Jeffrey. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so we have we have all these changes that I mean he almost has a low key, I would say British sense of humor, but he's not British. Mm-hmm. But he made me laugh out loud more than once. And he was so so wonderful in the ways he guided me and the suggestions he made. And yes, the corrections, yes. too, thank God, Yes, uh, that I really think that Brian Kimball deserves a major accolade uh, for his help with this book. But you know what? He doesn't care. <laughs> you know, he's into his plants. He's, yes. He, yeah, and, and you you, know, you have to love him for it. But just, just the neatest guy ever, and definitely someone behind the scenes who deserves credit, as does Lorraine Anderson, the developmental editor, as do the entire art department at Timber Press, who put together a fabulous layout and, you know, the whole team at Timber Press. So it takes a village. Yes. And I happen to be the most prominent and, you know, best known aspect of that effort. I have to say, this is a book to be proud of. And if I, if I may sound like I'm bragging, I'm not just bragging for me. I'm bragging for a whole team of people who pulled together what, in my opinion, is the finest book on succulent plants that's ever been written and may ever be written. It is my magnum opus, the the penultimate achievement of my career, my legacy. And I made sure that it was as good as I could make it, and a lot of other people did too. I think it's wonderful. I've learned a lot about you just in the response about how this book came to be. And I think one of my first takeaways that if you want Deborah Lee Baldwin to do something, you need to attach it to succulents somehow, because they clearly won your heart. They won your admiration in your heart. And this whole thing started because you had taken all of these photos and maybe weren't even aware of the fact that you were so drawn to them until it gets pointed out to you and then somebody's saying, hey, you should write a book about this. Well, you know, know, as a journalist specializing in homes, gardens, architecture, and interior design over the course of a 20-year career, you know, I have this ridiculously acute sense of aesthetics. I am actually grieved and pained if I see something that is badly put together and visually an eyesore. <laughs> you know, I'm looking around my office right now and, and I have a view of my garden and there are things that pain me even as we speak. <laughs> I've, done, I've done what I can, but it's never perfect. That's right. uh, so this, you know, this, this acute sense of aesthetics translated very well into the realm of succulent plants because, I mean, I think we all come to gardening. Um, it's a, a reminder of Eden and a foreshadowing of heaven where 
We're transported especially by flowers and color and scent and texture. And we love being immersed in a beautiful garden, but this isn't heaven. We live in a Pandora's box. What is in bloom one day is a sad mess the next and has to be deadheaded. There's a huge amount of maintenance in a garden. I have a half acre, I know. I have gone through my rose period just like the castle. <laughs> I I had you know, I had my canna lily period. I have I've had the biggest, boldest, most dramatic, marvelous flowers that you can grow in Southern California. And my own progression has been toward more sensible garden in terms of water usage and a more beautiful garden in terms of my own gradually refined aesthetic to develop over the years and has gotten away from foliage and transitory flowers into a more streamlined sculptural and geometric type of plant. And so as a, a mouthpiece for different publications, as a scout for Sunset Magazine, as a writer and a photographer, I know what makes a good photo. I know how to frame uh, a plant or a garden vignette or an overall shot of a garden so that it really speaks in terms of leading lines and you know, the way the light plays on different surfaces and the translucency of petals and leaves. I get all that. I had to because if I wanted to sell to publications as a freelance writer and photographer, I had to show them what could appear in the pages of their magazines. So of the photos I'd show Sunset Magazine, half of those gardens made it into the publication. But that was back when it was fat and sassy before the turn of the century. <laughs> But anyway, the development of that aesthetic, I think, naturally progresses toward succulent plants. Now, in that general category of sculptural, geometric, uh, you know, plants that look terrific in silhouette, you could include tillandsias and bromeliads and a lot of orchids. <laughs> I said once, I said once to a, a group of people, you know. Um, Succulents are known for their shapes, uh, but they also have the most fantastic flowers of any plants in the plant kingdom. And this really sweet man came up to me afterwards and he says, have you seen orchids? Oh. Oh. (laughs) And I wanted to say to him, have you seen the plants that produce orchids? Because they're not very good looking and you get, you know, a great looking plant and a great looking flower with succulents, but I didn't. So anyway, there is this natural progression of sophistication, and we're seeing it on the part of the gardening public, away from the traditional lawn and foundation shrub front yard toward a greater appreciation for foliage and for plants that you grow for their shapes and their leaves rather than for for their flowers, because flowers are ephemeral. They flash and fade, and then you're left with foliage. And before my... Well, you know, I've lived here for, for 26 years, and I went through the different phases. I'd interview somebody on the topic of general gardening. Maybe they specialized in, say, South African bulbs, and, and I had to have a zillion South, South African bulbs after talking to them because I was seduced by <laughs> their passion for that particular kind of plant. 
So over the progression of my own garden, um, I'm also seeing a similar progression with the gardening public at large, and that is toward these more dynamic sculptural plants. 15, 20 years ago, if I took a photo of my garden, it basically looked like a salad because there were just all this foliage and maybe a few dots of color, depending on the time of year. After installing large succulents, primarily agaves, into that salad, now I've got focal points. I've got textural differences. I've got strong, dynamic contrast. I've got great focal points for the leading lines. I've redone my whole garden, uh, and there is a section in the book that talks about that, so that, you know, wherever I stand, oh, well, there's this one primarily great spot that is where I stand when I evaluate anything that I'm doing in the garden. And the point is for me to be able to stand in that that particular vantage point and wherever I point my camera, it's a great shot. And I'm not too worried about the backside of things. I want them to look good from the foot of the stairs. There are some flagstone steps that go down into the garden, and there's a paved area and a sitting area. And that's where I stand, and I hold my camera, and I look through it. And, Jennifer, it's amazing when you do that how things will will snap into focus. They'll be framed. You'll, you'll see them as, as a vignette or as a composition that... You didn't really notice with all this distraction around it, but once you've got that rectangular frame around what you're working on, immediately you'll see what it needs. I learned that you did, I want to say about 75% of the photographs in this book. And photography, just like gardening, just like writing, is a skill and you get better at it as you practice and as you, you know, continue to work at it. And so I think that's very interesting how you've learned to design your garden through the use of photography. Yeah, um, I design it for photography and uh, I, I design the photos so that they show the best of the garden. You know, Back when I was primarily a magazine writer um, and the photos I was taking were to show editors the potential for a story, I worked with professional photographers who were were assigned to shoot the gardens that I found. And this this was right around the time that digital photography was just beginning. The photographers were using the old SLRs with... Uh, you know, transparency film, slide film. And it was all a big mystery to me because I'm completely non-technical. But I knew what to tell them to shoot because they had to, they had to illustrate my story and the slant that the editor wanted. So I worked with some of the top garden photographers in the U.S., and I still do, uh, you know, like when I'm on an assignment for Better Homes and Gardens. Um, they're not going to buy my photos. They're going to want to assign their own photographer. So I still do. But anyway, I've, I've magazine and newspaper photographers. I followed them around. I worked with them closely. I saw the gardens 
through their eyes and through their lenses. And pretty soon, I was right over their shoulder with my own camera, you know, shooting that perfect angle, that perfect light. Oh, my goodness, don't get me started on light. Um, Nothing is more important than light. And, you know, there's just so much I learned from them. And that helped me tremendously, especially after digital photography really started to take hold. And you didn't have to understand F-stops. <laughs> F-stops are just a horror to me because they're counterintuitive. There's something about it getting bigger when it's when the number's smaller and vice versa. And yes. you don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I quickly gave up on that. But because I'm really good at understanding light and I'm really good at understanding composition and I know how a photo can tell a story... That's all I needed. I didn't have to know the technical aspects of photography. When I did the first edition of Designing with Succulents, I, because Timber Press wanted transparencies, I went to all these locations with a cast iron SLR camera with slide film around my neck, like an albatross, and a digital camera in my right hand, and I would shoot and shoot and shoot that garden until I got the perfect shot, composition, light, uh, storytelling, whatever. And then I would whip out the digi- the um, manual SLR and shoot one or two slides of that perfect shot. So my secret for success in terms of photography, at least back in 2005, was to just burn pixels, you know, just shoot and shoot and shoot and then shoot some more. And out of a hundred shots, I would get those fabulous drop dead gorgeous photos that made their way into the book. Well, I'm not necessarily recommending that. Um, I think people should take a really good photography class, but you know what? The whole world is out there shooting stuff. They're shooting every little incident that happens to them, including their breakfast for social media People have become photographers. Yeah. Uh, so the bar has significantly been raised. And I have to say, when I go on Instagram, I am humbled by what I see. Oh, I think, gosh, you know, and to think that I used to think that my photos were pretty good. And, and that was the case with the second edition of Designing with Succulents. The bar had been raised to the point where I did not feel competent to illustrate the entire book, if I could find a better photograph by another photographer, either professional or amateur, bloggers are a great source, then that's the photo I went with. Even so, because so much of what I showed in the book uh, was there for a reason. It had to illustrate a point. Yes, uh, I drew from my own inventory of tens of thousands of photos. Trust me, that took a while <laughs> going yeah. through them all. And not not that, well, you know, over the years I'd sort of gotten kind of lazy about my my photo files. So there was a lot to wade through and a lot of dread. But the cream rose to the top. And you're right, I probably have about 75% of my own photos. And the rest were either because another photographer showed it better or because it was a part of the country that I hadn't been to and wasn't able to photograph. As you were talking about all of that, I was thinking about 
not only have we all become photographers, but our expectation for how we want photos to look, our expectation for the quality of imagery we need to see in publication has changed. And oh, yeah. and so I think it was great that you revised so many of the pictures and the pictures were stunning. I mean, <laughs> I told you in our pre-interview chat that I, when I'm getting ready for a guest on the show, I'll take the book. And before I do any research, I want to get my own impressions of the book and I'll take a ballpoint pen. And as I'm going through the book, I mark it all up, my initial impressions, my thoughts. And on in your book in particular, <laughs> the phrase I used over and over and over again is OMG. <laughs> I would oh, put, really? oh, yes, I would put OMG in the margins. <laughs> and there is oh. um there is one uh there is one garden I wanted to just say that yeah, here it is. It's the garden that's featured on page 26, and it's Joan Fields' garden. And when I saw the first picture, um, this is a story about a garden that was a standard lot, and then it became a succulent sanctuary. And uh -huh. I wanted to, to give myself a heads up when I was going back in through the book to make a special note of this garden, because I said, the first page is a wow, and then the pages after that become whoa. <laughs> And then after that, it's like, now I'm going to pass out because it was just, um, you know, the first page I saw all the beautiful colors. I saw the gravel path. I, I saw all the textures. I saw the wall. And then you turn the page and it's just breathtaking. And so the photography, I think, that you picked really did the trick. And you can see where, I mean, the just the whole range of succulents has increased so much over the past 10 years that, I mean, there was no other way to do this. You, you had to completely revise it. Yeah, yeah. And those, those photos of the field garden are my own photos. So <laughs> I'm especially complimented by that. Thank you so much. That's great. I was really blown away. I wanted to say, too, that I loved the cover of your book. Most people would say, oh, I love the picture. The picture is beautiful. It looks like a jewel box. You've got these gorgeous purples and yellows and greens and blues, and it's beautiful. What I loved about it, as someone who loves succulents, is the fact that the letters on the front are raised. I know, me too. <laughs> it's the tactile yeah. part of it that echoes the succulent. You've got succulents, you know, the juicy succulents, and your lettering almost has that feel, that sensation. So there's a tactile element oh, to your cover. I had Oh, how interesting. You know, I had I just had that similar reaction of, Oh, cool, raised letters. But it never dawned on me to ask myself why I like them. And I love how you took it that step further and analyzed, gee, you know, those raised letters sort of have that juicy leaf look that works really well with succulents. And that was my <laughs> first thought when I saw it. I thought, oh my goodness. And of course, I can't stop touching it because it's on the cover. And, and as I'm holding the book, you can't help but feel it. So it's wonderful. I want to make sure we, we touch on this. It's right at the very beginning. And it's where you define a succulent. It's so simple. It's so clear. I put such a simple definition and one that's so easy to remember. You said, succulent describes any plant that survives drought by storing water in its leaves, stems, or roots. Let me have you begin by sharing your story of how you made over your own garden. Okay, so this is from page 16 of the second edition of Designing with Succulents. This is my own garden, and the title is My Own Garden's Makeover. 
Ironically, authoring several books about succulents nearly caused me to stop gardening. Writing, lecturing, and traveling left little time for it. Once lush with fruit trees and flowers, the rocky half-acre in the foothills north of San Diego, where my husband and I had lived for a quarter century, was shabby and overgrown. The succulents I planted over the years needed rescuing from aggressive perennials like Mexican evening primrose, centranthus, and matillahop poppies. The few roses that had survived looked spindly and odd alongside large agaves. Revamping the garden was much like creating this second edition of Designing with Succulents, a giant editing job. A lot needed to go and a comparable amount to be added. A big project, but what's the point of having a passion if you don't pursue it? Of acquiring knowledge if you don't apply it? I wanted the garden to reflect what I'd learned about design as well as succulents. It helped, too, that I know every square inch of the land, its orientation to the sun throughout the seasons, which areas are vulnerable to cold or scorching heat, what the soil lacks or is blessed with, and how the slope, which is steep in places, erodes during storms. Despite my renewed enthusiasm, there was no denying I'd slowed a bit. Often I was dismayed to discover I'd spent hours, hours, caught up in perfecting a few square feet. But after a fed-up inner voice said, how can someone be wasting her time if she enjoys what she's doing? I allowed myself goal-free gazing. Birds emerged. Lizards did push-ups. And as always, surrounding hills became gold-tipped too soon. Creating a garden is one of life's great pleasures, not to be rushed or denied. What does it matter if visitors come and it isn't finished? Unlike a book. A garden never is. Thank you for that. Our gardens are really a reflection of us. They are. I know that gardens can be marvelously healing places. If you don't put too high a standard or demand on yourself to try to keep it up, and you, I mean, aiming at perfection can take some of the fun out of it. Uh, I have a friend who is more of a plant collector than a gardener, and I mean, she knows a great garden when she sees one, but it doesn't matter to her. She just revels in the plants themselves. She walks through her garden, which is tidy and overgrown, and weeds have gotten out of hand in places, and she runs her fingertips along the plants and sniffs her fingertips because of the fragrance of the different salvias, the different sages, and, you know, some of the, there are, there are orange, uh, blossoms and bloom, and she just stops and, you know, drinks them in. She literally inhales the trees when she walks through them, and she may peel a petal off of a guava flower, you know, that precedes the fruit, and absentmindedly munch on it, <laughs> and then hand it to you. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll never look at borage, the herb, without thinking of her. Because uh, she she pinched off one of its bright blue star-shaped flowers and handed it to me. And she said, here, eat this. Well, I'm an adventurous eater, but I hadn't expected to be eating a blue flower in someone's garden. It wasn't, one, it wasn't much bigger than my thumbnail, and I thought, well, it's not going to kill me. And, yeah, you know, it had a, it had a kind of a sweet herbal taste not particularly memorable, 
But all I could think of was, oh my gosh, can you imagine putting this up a salad with a few nasturtiums, <laughs> bright orange nasturtiums? Wouldn't that be amazing? And to this day, I think of her and I think of that borage and I wish I had it when I'm preparing a really nice lunch that includes maybe a few bright orange nasturtiums off to the side. So I guess what I'm saying is I really need to get some borage seeds and set aside part of my garden to grow it. It's just one of those things I never get around to. I think a garden is as personal as the person who owns it and tends it. And there's no need to apologize if it's not maybe what somebody else wants. You you create a garden as a retreat, as a respite, as a sanctuary, as a place that is uniquely personal to you. It's filled with living things that are dependent on you. And if that means that some beautiful specimen has to go where you'll never see it because that's where it's happiest, then that's a decision that is uniquely yours to make. I think the, the best designed gardens tend to put the most amazing plants where you can see them. But a true gardener may put the plants first in terms of what they need rather than the aesthetic benefit that they provide. Um, because that person knows they're going to be out in the garden and they're going to be seeing them anyway. In fact, they may even make a special trip to that neglected corner just to see how the Bocarnia recurvata is coming along. When I was covering uh, homes, gardens, architecture, and interior design for the San Diego Union Tribune, I did a story I'll never forget on a, uh, a hospital garden at Children's Hospital in San Diego that had a healing garden. And that garden was for the children. You know, maybe they could be wheeled out there and they could enjoy the fragrances and the textures and the colors and get fresh air and sunshine. But it was also for their family members who were coming to the hospital to see their severely ill children. And there were times when they had to wait uh, for an outcome or wait um, for a procedure to be finished. And where did they go? They went to the healing garden because that offered what they needed to soothe their souls. So I, I think of that garden, uh, I think of how I've been lying, you know, in certain circumstances. I had, to, I had traction once, and I was lying <laughs> flat on my back in a physical therapist's office, and it was boring. And there was a high window that I could look out, and I could see tree branches through it. And I just was mesmerized by the light shining through those leaves. And I realized that wherever I am, at whatever stage of my life, even if I'm doing something boring or tiresome or whatever, I need to see greenery. Mm. That, that speaks to me in a soothing, healing way that nothing else does. I needed those trees. I wasn't in pain. Uh, I was just bored. <laughs> that was before that was before cell phones. <laughs> so so I I you know, as you get older you think, Well where am I gonna end up? You know, am I gonna be in a nursing home? Well if I am, there better be a window and there better be a tree outside. Very true. There's a two page 
part of your book that I think is just exemplary. And the title of it is called Your Garden from Dream to Reality. Uh And you show a map of a garden that was created. And then, and that's the dream. And then you show the reality. And it's the Mathis Garden. Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And the picture that you took was only two years after installation, which blew me away. But I suppose it's the difference between gardening in Minnesota, where we have to take a break six months out of the year, and gardening in California. But it was absolutely stunning to me how that picture actually came to life in this garden. It was amazing. Well, I'm just, I could not be more delighted to hear that because... You know, you get so close to a project that you lose perspective on it. And I i don't know, I looked at that drawing and then I looked at the photo opposite and I thought, does it really work? Does it really make that point? And you just told me it, it does. So Absolutely. I'm very, very glad to hear you say that. You talk about maintaining succulents. And that's something that people don't always think of because all of the hype around succulents is that they're low maintenance, that they're maintenance free. And yet, you know, as someone who works with succulents regularly, that they do need maintaining. And you showed a picture of the tools that you like to use. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what's in the spray bottle? And then what is the thing that looks like a long tweezer? Oh, long-handled tweezers are wonderful for pulling weeds and grooming spiky succulents. Yeah, what's... Oh, that's just rubbing alcohol. That's for... In the spray bottle, yeah, that's for small sucking insects that tend to colonize flower buds and tender new growth. You just buy a, a regular bottle of isopropyl alcohol from any drugstore or supermarket, and you can either pour that into a spray bottle, or you can just take a spray bottle attachment, the sprayer part, and use that instead of a cap on the um, bottle of alcohol. Aphids are spring and mealybugs are fall. So, yeah, that's a good thing to have year-round when you're going around grooming your plants because you may notice a minor infestation and you'll think, oh, I'll come back and I'll take care of that. Well, if you have your spray bottle, you can dip it in the bud, (laughs) literally. Literally. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so you just put the rubbing alcohol wherever you see the infestation and it does no harm to the plant. It doesn't. Now, conventional wisdom is you should dilute it. And I I do recommend diluting it somewhat, but there's two kinds of rubbing alcohol. I think there's 70% and 90%. And you, if you use the 70% isopropyl alcohol, you don't have to dilute it. But if you use the 90%, you should, you should mix it, um, you know, with, with just regular water. But distilled water is better because it doesn't leave water drop spots. I used to say, yeah, dilute the rubbing alcohol 50% with water. I don't do that, and it's just a cautionary thing. There are people out there who collect rare and valuable specimens of succulents. The Texas and Succulent Society of America is primarily collectors, and they have plants that they can't take a chance with. So I would say if that's the case with your succulent and you don't want to risk some adverse effects of a chemical like alcohol, then dilute it. Personally, I don't bother, but then I don't have that many rare and valuable collectible succulents. 
And I've never seen a problem. You know, I I, I spray it on echeverias. Uh, I spray it on thin-leaved succulents. I spray it on flower buds and leaf axles and even even the fuzzy pulverulent succulents are fine. Pulverulent meaning they have a fine powdery coating. Okay. And even they can take it. Well, at least so far. I mean, I would think, though, if you had a very pulverulent, very powdery coated succulent, be very cautious about spraying it with anything. Okay. Because that's a significant part of its beauty. And you don't want to compromise that. Well, you show some tips for handling cactus a few oh, pages yeah. later on, on page 133. I thought these were genius. And for someone like myself that doesn't have a lot of cactus and is a little bit afraid of working with them, I thought these were genius pictures. Do you want to walk us through them? Yeah, sure. I should preface it by saying that, you know, we were talking about the progression of sophistication. In terms of gardening from foliage and flowers to more streamlined geometric and sculptural shapes, well, that leads you to succulents. But then once you're there in the realm of succulents, is there progression past that? And I'm thinking, yeah, and it's into cactus, which horrifies a large number of people, especially ladies in the garden club set, because, and rightfully so, they can't imagine ever gardening with something that's going to bite, with something that's going to draw blood that you can't pull a weed from without getting poked. And there is that. But of all the succulents that I photograph, my favorite are cacti, especially the symmetrical round ones that have translucent spines that glow when backlit. Oh, come on. I mean, they are beyond gorgeous. So it's worth it to have some of these jewel-like treasures, a collection, a small collection. You don't have to, you know, populate your entire garden with menacing plants. Um, But definitely you should have a jewel box collection of really exquisite cacti and position them so you do get those backlighting effects. And they're displayed maybe in a miniature landscape that suggests a desertscape or maybe along a windowsill where you'll see them and appreciate them for their exquisite yet simple beauty. So when you're actually dealing with cactus and you need to pot it up, you can see there on page 133, Matthew Wong, who was 12 at the time, is using kitchen tongs to elevate the pad of an Apuntia cactus, a prickly pear cactus. Uh, he's holding the pad and he has the root ball elevated and he's about to pot it up in a terracotta pot. And one thing that I would suggest when holding any cactus or any plant with kitchen tongs is that you do it carefully so you're not actually poking into the flesh of the cactus. And I have, depending on how tender and sensitive the cactus, I've actually wrapped the tips of my tongs with foam rubber and secured it with rubber bands to cushion it. And then afterwards, you know, because there's probably a few spines stuck to that foam rubber, I'll just snip it off and discard it. And you see down there, uh, also on page 133, you see uh, Elizabeth Hanlon, one of my neighbors, just calmly holding a barrel cactus. A barrel cactus that is as big as a basketball and 
She probably couldn't hold one much bigger than that because they're full of water. So imagine a basketball full of water covered with needles. Oh, wow. That are all poking out. But take a close look at that barrel cactus and you'll see that those sharp spines all curve downward. That's important. And they're they're firm and stiff. They're not going to detach. And they're not pointed like a needle. I mean, I, I use the term needle-like, but actually, they're more like bayonets. <laughs> Little tiny bayonets, all curved downward. Okay. Um, and a plant well worth growing because of its beauty, especially when backlit. But what Elizabeth is doing here is she's securing the barrel cactus uh, that she's just uprooted. With a, She's wearing a glove, a leather glove, on her right hand. And she's cushioning the plant, which protects it and her, with a folded newspaper. And then she can lift and transplant it to wherever she wants to put it in her garden. And then for those of you who are actually, you know, in the nursery business and you want to go and select your barrel cacti right out of the growing fields, you see how someone is using a soft hose to literally lasso a cactus. And then with the other hand, he is uprooting it. And you don't need a big root ball, despite the size of the plant. And he will carry that, sort of like a hunter who is carrying his game by the feet. Uh, He'll be carrying that barrel cactus by the top of a lasso and cinching it tight enough that it's that it's holding the barrel cactus until he can reposition it or put it in a pot or in his truck. So I don't know, does that help? Yeah, I think it'll help people overcome their fear of working with cactus. Yeah, I I don't have a lot of cactus, but um, I don't, you know, I'm just used to reaching for my my kitchen tongs and, you know, folding newspaper. You make kind of a collar or a, a, you roll up the newspaper and then wrap it around the plant if you want to. Uh, if the kitchen tongs don't open wide enough, that's a great way to go. Uh, I I absolutely love my cactus, but it's primarily in pots. In the garden, I have golden barrels for two reasons. Sometimes there are areas of the garden where literally nothing will grow. It's at the top of the slope, water flows away, percolates downward, the soil is decomposed granite, um, and there's a bare spot. There's always a bare spot on the top of that slope. Well, that, my friends, my friends, uh, is the perfect place for barrel cacti because they'll be prominent. Uh, they, they lend all kinds of aesthetic interest. I, I often say that barrel cacti are a landscape designer's secret weapon. Because you can take an ordinary succulent landscape and transform it into something that looks polished and professional and extraordinary by grouping barrel cacti. Three barrel cacti is all you need. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're an investment and they're because they take forever to get large. But you can start out with one that's twelve inches in diameter and before you know it, it'll double in size. Well, before you know it, you know, by about the time your kids go to college. (laughs) (laughs) Which goes fast. Okay, so maybe you want to spring for a slightly larger one. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know how it is with the garden. Uh, Years pass before you know it. And you're so glad you planted whatever it was because now it's big. Um, So don't wait. You know, get those barrel cacti in the ground now. 
uh, especially if you live in, uh, you know, a, a arid region with poor soil, like much of Southern California. But aesthetically, Jennifer, they are the most phenomenal plants in a in a drought tolerant landscape. They glow when backlit by the sun. They add spherical shapes, which are great contrast to the upright fountain-like shapes of agaves or the finer textured leaves of perennials. They are supremely low water, so no worries about that dry spot that nothing else will grow. And aesthetically, they just they add a sculptural element that is interesting, and they also repeat the yellow of other plants. So one thing I'd love to see, and I see this a lot because I think landscape designers here and even homeowners have picked up on it, are gardens that use primary colors. And you can do that really effectively with succulents because they really do come. Um, the aloes have red leaves. A lot of crassulas will redden. Um, you get the blue senecios, which are truly sky blue, and they're a great ground cover. And a lot of agaves have blue in their leaves, as do cotyledons and numerous other succulents. So that gives you the red and the blue. And then, of course, you get into the yellows with the sunset jade, which is a, a true bright, amazing yellow when grown in full sun. Grow it in shade, and it reverts to green, so you've wasted your money. But um, so... With those primary colors, add golden barrel cacti, and you've got it. I mean, it's just as good as it gets. And those are all very easy grow plants. You can have a simple, beautiful landscape that's very low maintenance just by combining those, keeping the primary colors in mind, and positioning those cacti at the top of a mound or a top of a slope because they don't need as much water as the other plants. They just accomplish so many things with one plant, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, the, the whole idea of the progression toward cactus, which I know, you know, a lot of your listeners are just going to close their ears because cactus. Nobody wants to grow cactus. Are you crazy, Deborah? Well, let me tell you, when I did that first article for the San Diego Union Tribune back in the late 90s, where I visited a succulent garden that the Huntington Botanical Gardens volunteer had created in northern San Diego County with uh, large aloes and agaves, big specimens that I'd never really seen in gardens used that way before, I did notice a significant patch of golden barrel cacti. And it was mid-afternoon, late afternoon, and... I had been ignoring the cactus because I'd, I had that automatic, or at the time, I had that automatic response of, oh, cactus. And then you just shut down. You don't, you don't go any further. You don't care. You're not interested. But I was doing an interview and I asked the gardener, Patrick Anderson, why do you have cactus? And Patrick said three words that have echoed in my head for a decade. Or more. And those were stand over here. And he was higher up the slope and he was facing west. And I was down slope facing east. So I came around, I passed the barrel cactus, 
stood next to Patrick and looked at the lower western sun illuminating the barrel cacti, and they were haloed. And I gasped. Mm. I said, oh, my gosh. And I got it. And I have never looked at a barrel cactus with indifference or disdain since. I have looked at them as one of the most beautiful plants on the planet. Because once you see them haloed, you're transported. There are two images of your garden. One is taken at a slightly different angle. I wrote next to one of these pictures, clever girl. And this is what I I was referring to you here because the first image shows your garden and you say, after a yellow street sign jumped out at me from beyond my garden, I planted a tree to conceal it and added a focal point to draw the eye away from it. And then you actually direct the reader to look for the sign. You say, look, you know, you'll see it over on the left-hand side. But uh-huh. what, what I was drawn to is this beautiful stand, and I believe that's your focal point, and is that a barrel cactus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a top, an elevated, broad iron plant holder, and it has a top that's made out of wrought iron that secures a wide, shallow pot, and... When I first put that barrel cactus on that stand, I extended a drip tube to the top of it. So whenever the uh, automatic irrigation came on, the barrel cactus would be watered. But that got plugged or stopped functioning. I don't know. I don't know when, but <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's doing fine. It's Yeah, it's growing in a coarse potting mix, uh, you know, regular bagged potting soil. Amended half and half with uh, pumice, which is a volcanic rock, uh, pulverized volcanic rock, which is great for aerating the soil and enhancing drainage. And then I top-dressed it with decomposed granite. And so the barrel cactus, which is glacially getting larger over the years, it's been, what, about four years now, uh, it's probably increased in size by about 20%, is growing in a very shallow mix it's dry most of the time. But, I mean, it does, I mean, this is the amazing thing, Jennifer, about succulents, is plants like that don't even really need their roots. Think about it. In its native environment, uh, barrel cactus goes without rainfall for eight or nine months at a time. Now, that's not very far from here. I mean, I'm talking about Mexico, which is not far from San Diego. Okay. Um, so we have a very similar climate where we we may not have rainfall for eight or nine months at a stretch, and we're completely dependent on Colorado River water and irrigation systems and hose watering. And, and so cactus makes so much sense. But if you look at a barrel cactus in terms of its water requirements, it's got all it needs right in the body of the plant. And if its roots desiccate during that long dry spell, it just regenerates them when the rains return. Hmm. So I'm not too worried about it. That particular container does drain. I would be more worried about uh, in the rainy season here, which is midwinter, 
I'd be more worried about that container filling with water and drowning the roots and rot going up into the core of the plant, and then I'd lose it. There's nothing more gross or disgusting than a rotten barrel cactus. Oh. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not worried about that because it does drain. Um, and I don't need the drip tube. I didn't have to go to the trouble of extending it up there. And it's just, it's a nice focal point. I elevated it so that it would be backlit. And um, the eye goes to it. It's a, it's a nice sphere. It's a sculpture, a living sculpture. Yes, it is a living sculpture. Earlier in the book, just a few pages before that shot, is a different vantage point, and you see that focal point, but your eye is drawn to three barrel cactuses that you group together, and they're different sizes, and you turn it into a kitty. Yeah, the cactus cat. I saw that uh, it was on social media, and it wasn't credited, so... I don't know where it came from, and I, you know, as a journalist, it just kills me if I can't give credit. Uh, I think it's a, a, I absolutely have a horror of taking credit for something myself that I didn't originate, and that was true of the cat, Um, but there is a cat made out of barrel cactus in the section of my own garden on page 18, and I, I had created it from the photo that I saw online. The eyes have since fallen off and the little ears. I mainly, you know, refurbish it when I'm having company or a photo shoot. And the the rest of the time, the barrel cactus is just sitting there growing happily in the garden. What do you use for the ears? The ears are a kind of of opuntia or paddle cactus. It's just, you know, pad forming. And one pad will grow from another and I just snipped off the pads that seemed to be in the right size. And I stuck them, the, the juicy end where I'd snipped them, I just impaled them on the golden barrel spines. Oh, perfect. Yeah, and, you know, they're cactus. They last a couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> then I take them off. You know, they kind of dry out or whatever. And then she gets a new set of ears. Yeah, if I if I think of it, I I have to remember to buy that cactus, um, so I have ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that you mentioned here when you were talking about that mushy, uh, rotting uh, barrel cactus—if they get too wet, too much water is really not good for succulents, drowning them or having them in you know wet areas given how they like to grow. And there was one point in your book where you were talking about ideal planting conditions. And I just wrote to myself, mounding up, you know, mounding up is your friend, Uh especially in Minnesota, if you're if you're trying to grow succulents. My question is taking succulents and growing them inside, you know, here in the Midwest, even the big box stores will sell succulents that are definitely not going to make it through our Minnesota winter. And so Mm -hmm. people bring them indoors. They want to grow them indoors. Mm -hmm. But after a few months, they really don't seem to thrive. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Why, Why do they need to be outside? Well, you know, as with any garden plant, you'll have greater success growing it if you understand where it originated, what part of the world, what its native growing conditions were. These are dry climate plants. They like arid conditions. They like lots of sun. They like good air circulation. 
succulents like the same conditions that you like when you go on vacation. They like to just soak up the rays. They like the, the breezes, the, the moderate temperatures. So whatever makes you happy is going to make your succulents happy, and that includes indoors. However, you probably don't have a full-spectrum light source giving you the sun's rays all day long indoors unless you have seasonal affective disorder where you have to have yeah. more more of that. But that's that's basically what it comes down to is as closely as you can replicate that balmy, arid, not humid, not moist climate, the better. And you can more easily do that outdoors after all danger of frost in the spring and before the weather turns cold, wet, and rainy later in the year. You can always grow succulents. You can grow any kind of succulent, even the ones that get enormous. You can grow them as juveniles in pots and move those pots into better conditions as the weather dictates. Or you can move them back out into full sun. Just do it gradually so you don't sunburn them. They're a lot like we are in that regard, too. Uh, a sudden change can cause burned patches. And on succulents, they don't heal and they don't go away until the leaves eventually wither and fall off. And so a lot of it is common sense. But what I've seen that has worked very well are people who will set up a basement situation where they move their potted succulents under grow lights that come on for maybe six to eight hours a day. If it's during the winter, the plants are dormant anyway. They don't need a full-spectrum light source. You can do something inexpensive, like fluorescent lights are fine. And you keep them you keep them above freezing. But you don't keep them too terribly warm because they do need some cold to develop flowers in the spring. So, again, it's a lot like their growing conditions in the wintertime where they're native to either in the Americas or in Africa, where a lot of the pretty ones come from. You know, the the Kalanchoes from Madagascar and so many of the other ones that we prize because of the rosette shapes come from South Africa. Uh, the, the spinier, more keep-away ones come from the Americas, the agaves and the cacti. Hmm. But Echeverias, too. I mean, there's there's not a hard and fast on that one. But anyway, to keep your to keep your succulents going year round, uh, you can also just look at them as annuals. It, it never occurs to you when you are caught up in the spring fever and shopping at your local garden center for color, annual color in the spring, that you're going to try to keep those petunias going for a year. No, I mean you just expect <laughs> them to peter out and they're gone. Well, you can certainly look at succulents the same way. It's more probably more of an investment, but as they become more common and there are more pass-along plants and more cuttings available, it's not going to be that big a deal. You'll have you can have succulents in your garden during the more moderate times of the year, and then just let the crappy weather get them you know, <laughs> and replant again in the spring. That's what you do with everything else. Or you can you can go to a lot of trouble if you want to. I, I think it's too much trouble, but then I live in Southern California. You can dig up the plants. You can grow them only in containers that are portable. You can take cuttings and start those cuttings in flats that you overwinter, and then you can plant them out again in the spring. One good thing about succulents is they really lend themselves to cutting cultivation, propagation through cuttings. 
people say, well, how do you how do you prune a, a succulent? Because you've got all this tip growth and denuded stems, and so it's looking kind of messy over time. Well, it's the it's the opposite of pruning a typical woody shrub, where you cut off the new growth and you throw it away. With succulents, you cut off the new growth, keep it, and you throw the rest of the plant away. You just the very shallow rooted. You just reach down toward the crown of the plant, give it a good jerk. The whole thing comes out. Toss it in the trash. Spade the soil where it was to make it more friable, and insert the, the tips. And you'll have a beautiful new cluster of that plant. In fact, you'll probably have enough cuttings that you can you can move it somewhere else. This is the big secret that the nurserymen don't want you to know, that uh, once you have a succulent and you're growing it successfully, you never have to go back and buy that same plant again because it'll just keep giving you plants for cuttings. Love that. And you can pass them along. And they're great pass-along plants. I do the same thing with my Autumn Joy sedum. I just, when I'm cutting them back, usually before the 4th of July, because uh-huh. I want to keep that plant from getting leggy, I'll take everything I chop off the top and put it in a pot, and then I'll have a bunch of new plants just from that exactly. shaping. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There there are people who have so many cuttings, they don't know what to do with them all. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can believe that. I can believe that. You know, there yeah. was one other great tip in your book that I, I appreciated, and I call it the chopstick test oh, now, yeah. thanks to you. Yeah, yeah. One thing that... I think I bring in terms of expertise is being a journalist, I've interviewed so many people who are absolutely brilliant at what they do. And that has, I've learned an awful lot from them, but by no means are all the tips in the book mine. I'm not a nurseryman. I'm not even a professional designer, although I've picked up a lot of tips and I could, I can design. But I got that particular tip of using the chopstick to settle the roots of a container composition uh, from a professional floral designer who specializes in succulents. Hmm. And she does these very tightly packed container gardens. They're beautiful. You wouldn't believe how much plant material goes into one pot, one wide shallow pot. You think when you're accumulating your plants from the nursery that... If roughly the same surface area is represented by the potted succulents, that's all you need for the the, the pot. Oh no, no, she <laughs> she crams three times as many into it. So you reach a point uh, in this lush process of of cramming these plants into a container that you really cannot access the base of the plant. You can't get to the root ball, and when you're starting to get to that point. You can settle the root ball and, and help it to become anchored and mix with the potting soil by using a chopstick, which you insert and poke around at the base of that plant. So you, you put it in the pot. Um, it's, it's not quite settled yet. You push down with one hand on the base of the, the plant, like, like right above the, where the root ball meets the stem. If you can, if you can reach that far down, uh, if not, then as low down as you can go. And then with the other hand, which is usually your right hand, you jab at the base of that plant and push down with the tip of the chopstick to settle it. And it's a great, it's a great idea. Uh, a blunt chopstick 
is probably better than a, than a really sharp-tipped one that might break off the roots. If you lose a few roots, again, it's not that big a deal. Succulents are much more dependent on the moisture and nutrients in their leaves than they are what they can take up through their roots. And you can also use the tip of an artist's paintbrush. I do that a lot because I like to use the other end of the paintbrush to brush any soil that might have fallen on the leaves. So you get one tool of those two things. Or you could simply use a pencil. Clever. Love the pencil, too. I have a question for you, a personal question about my own garden. I love hens and chicks. My grandmother grew them, and so that kind of has gotten passed down. And I can't get enough of them. And when I'm planting my hens and chicks, I like to plant them around boulders or rocks in my garden. Uh I have a lot of boulders and rocks. And I always figure that they heat up and absorb that warmth from the sun And I can't really explain it to people any other way why I like to do that. But I always just imagine if I was a hen and chick, that's where I'd want to hang out. And they seem to be happier by the Uh boulders. Is there some truth to that, that they like to be around big rocks like that? Yes, yes. Rocks and a rock garden are a fantastic way to keep plants happy, Uh, not just succulents, but a lot of different plants really thrive when planted in pockets between boulders um, in a rock garden situation, in a terrace. Boulders large and small, anything from the size of a bowling ball to a behemoth like I have in my neighborhood. Uh, we were known for boulders as big as Volkswagens and school buses. These all create microclimates, and the boulder will absorb the sun's rays and radiate that warmth at night, so they moderate the temperature. Plus, a boulder will keep the soil a few degrees warmer, and warm soil is uh, ideal for root growth. So that's another really good thing, and roots of plants will go under boulders, not just because it's warm under there, but also because there's it's moist under there. The soil doesn't dry out as quickly below a boulder. You can get a similar effect with top dressing, which I really recommend for a finished look in any succulent composition, whether it's a landscape or a terrarium. Conceal soil that's showing. It's amazing what a difference that makes. And You can do that with gravel. You can do it with decomposed granite, fine-grained decomposed granite. You can do it with pea gravel. You can do it with rubble rock. You can do it with colored rock if that's your aesthetic, or you can look around your area and notice what the natural boulders are and replicate that, and then you're borrowing that distant landscape and you're bringing it into your own garden. What I don't really recommend is organic mulches around succulents. It's not a bad thing. Uh, I see a lot of professional landscapers using shredded bark It you know, especially when they're incorporating succulents into an existing garden, because shredded bark is ideal for woody plants, for trees and perennials. The reason why it's not all that recommended for succulents is somewhat aesthetic. This is not what you would see in nature. They don't grow in forests, so they're not going to be growing in uh, shredded bark. The organic matter, which decomposes and has to be replaced, holds moisture and harbors insects. And so if you are using that, 
and incorporating succulents in your garden, you want to clear the area around the base of the succulent so that it's not getting too much moisture and um, there's no easy access for snails and earwigs and other plants because once something chews on a succulent leaf, I mean, that plant keeps that leaf forever and you're going to be looking at that marred leaf and wishing that you'd dealt with the pest before it before it could do that damage. Now, here's one other question I have for you about my hens and chicks. Because of our climate, I like to grow them in containers just like everybody else. But if I don't do something to protect that plant during the winter, it's not going to overwinter above ground in a container. I had a woman that I had bought some roly-poly hens and chicks from one time, and she uh-huh. said... Lay it on the ground in November and then bury it. And so I'll take cocoa bean mulch and I will just bury my containers. I'll find kind of a shallower spot in the garden, lay everything on the ground, and then I'll bury it. And over the winter, I don't know at what point, I'm assuming at some point it must be happening, but all of my hens and chicks will have their little babies under that cocoa bean mulch. And then in the spring when I come out, I dig them up and there they are. They're happy. They've even had more rosettes form Uh underground. Uh Why is that happening or how does that happen in a cold climate like this? Well, that is fascinating, Jennifer. And honestly, this is the first I've heard of doing that, but I can see why that would happen. These are plants that are accustomed to being buried by snow and falling leaves. So the fact that they're not getting any sunlight and they're staying relatively moist in a kind of a a state of suspended animation because they're going to be dormant during that period. All of that is conducive to root growth. And whereas the plants themselves may not be growing vigorously, the the leaves, you're going to be getting new root formation to fuel the new spring growth. Okay. I'm a little surprised that they will do that in complete darkness. Um, I don't know, maybe there's something wonderful about the cocoa mulch that uh, keeps them dry enough, uh, maybe even protects them. But that lack of that lack of UV, that lack of sunlight, that surprised me. I, I, I it's good to know, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that if you tried to do that with any other genus of succulent, they would rot. Yeah, they would simply get too moist in that, and they just wouldn't be there for you when it's time to dig them up. Yeah. Uh, Semper vivum is what we're talking about here. The hens and chicks. They got their common name, cobweb, house leek, and um, oh, there's a name. They they grow on rooftops in England, and they're used to those roofs drying out from under them. But there's enough moisture that they can they can settle in. So it's a fascinating little plant, a fairly thin-leaved succulent. Uh, It reproduces by sending out little babies, kind of on the end of of a stem that's like an umbilical cord and the mother plant feeds the baby plant through that stem until it can root on its own. And so you get that hens and chicks effect with the main rosette being the hen and it's surrounded by its chicks, its little babies. As far as this rather extraordinary 
process that you're doing to overwinter them. Mm-hmm. You know, I learn something every day. <laughs> every genus, every species, every cultivar of succulent, every plant for that matter, has qualities about it that make it unique. And I think you've discovered something about the genus Sempervivum that more people should know about. Hmm. Um I, you know, I think she just buried hers. I don't think she used the mulch per se, but I know that she buried it. You know, this is the great thing about buying a plant from an older gardener, a, a seasoned uh-huh. gardener, is they tell you all these things and you just go home and do it and it works and you don't necessarily understand why. But I use oh. the mulch just because I usually have a little bit extra on hand and I figure, well, then I don't have to dig a hole. I can just like bury it. I'll just cover it up with this. And it's so easy to take it out in the spring. And I make sure that when I'm laying them on the ground that they're in a high spot. It's also in a very well-drained spot, so it's not going to get uh-huh. mushy or anything. But I'm always delighted in the spring when I reach down and I pull out my Mexican pots or my containers or whatnot. And there are all these little babies. They all grew over the Minnesota winter and you know we're negative 30 negative 40 and that's that's just what they do if I leave them out they just uh, dry up and completely decay you've tucked them in you put them under a blanket and they sleep during the winter they sort of hibernate you know there's a wonderful book out that I recommend I've been recommending this book for a decade because it came out when the first edition of Designing with Succulents came out and that's Hardy Succulents by Gwen Kaleidis, K-E-L-A-I-D-I-S. But she wrote this terrific book, very easy to read, very easy to follow on succulents that will grow in cold climates like Denver. She talks a lot about the, the different genera, sedum and sempervivum, or your hens and chicks. Uh, stone crops and hens and chicks are the common names. And it's one of my favorite reference guides, primarily because it's so beautifully illustrated. Photography is by Saxon Holt, who is one of the top garden photographers in the United States. In fact, he and I have known each other in kind of an unusual way for the past seven or eight years because we both contribute to a popular garden blog, Gardening Gone Wild. And so we take turns posting along with Fran Soren, who is a garden correspondent with CBS Radio. So the three of us share this blog. We write about different things. Saxon is now on Instagram. He posts really cool photos on Instagram. But this particular book, I mean, it stood the test, the, the test of time. It's still my go-to reference on succulents for cold climates. There are other books. There are other excellent books. Um, in fact, Timber Press has come out with a couple of books that I also refer to. But for a quick reference that gives a great overview and is pure eye candy, I recommend Hardy Succulents by Gwen Kaleidis, photographs by Saxon Holt. That's great to know. Why don't we wrap up by having you share some of your favorites? You have a section in your book that's called Succulents A to Z. And uh-huh. I just have to say that I was fortunate enough here at some point in the last month to have seen a video that you did with Laura Eubanks and Shauna Coronado. And oh, yeah. you were showing the glottophyllum lingiform, I believe. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was totally blown away because you're wringing out the leaf 
and of this glottophyllum and it it's like you're wringing out a rag. It was <laughs> it was just like a dish rag. I, I even had my yeah. kids come over to watch this video. I'm like, check this out because it blows yeah. you away. Talk about a cool plant. That was yeah. unbelievable. Well, Jennifer, I hope you visit sometime because that is part of the tour that I give to people who have come to my garden for the first time. We wrap up the tour of the garden in that area. It's actually a utility nursery area where I do my potting. And that glottophyllum lingoform uh, has naturalized there. It's a kind of ice plant. And it's um, it's, a, it's an unusual plant. I mean, the, the species name lingoform means tongue-shaped. And it has very thin skin and leaves that look like long tongues, and they form kind of a loose rosette. And when it blooms, it has ice plant flowers, but they're sparse. It's kind of like pickleweed. It looks like pickleweed with flat leaves, pickleweed meaning carpobrotus, which is very common in California, probably not so much elsewhere. Um, and it's, it's an oddity. It drives me crazy because the <laughs> skin is so thin that I have to run out there when I think hail might be part of a rainstorm and cover it because all the leaves will get pitted. Really? From, from little bitty hail, you know, smaller than a pea. Huh. Or if a snail happens along, uh, oh, you know, leaves are just unsightly because of that, that super thin skin. But the leaves themselves, and what I do when we're standing there looking at this patch of, you know, tongue-shaped leaved dark green ice plant is I'll reach down and I'll get a leaf that usually needs to come off anyway. Um, and I'll, I'll pinch that off and I'll let my guests touch it. And they, you know, they push on, on the leaf between their thumb and forefinger and it's fleshy and uh, maybe about a oh, quarter to a half an inch thick. And it's, it's almost like, if you were to take your thumb and forefinger and pinch the skin on your hand below your thumb, it, it has that that meaty feel to it. And then I ask them, so, anybody want to tell me what the definition of a succulent is? And, of course, they get that look of a deer caught in the headlights, and I, I don't even wait for them to answer because <laughs> I don't want to put them on the spot. And, I, and I'm holding this leaf, and I say, succulent is any plant that stores water to withstand periods of drought. I said, but of all the plants in my garden, this one is the juiciest, and it stores the most water in its leaves. And then I say, I'm going to do something that you'll never forget. You'll never forget having visited my garden or what I'm about to do. So stand back. <laughs> and they take they take this, you know, look like, oh, my gosh. And I, I take the leaf and I fold it in half, hold it in the palm of my hand, and I squeeze it. And the juice squirts a yes. good two feet. And then I fold the leaf again and I squeeze it again and juice drips out of my fist onto the ground. <laughs> And I sh and then I open my hand and I show them the crushed, squeezed leaf. It's just one of those oddities. It's not typical of succulents. All succulents have juicy leaves to some extent, or juicy trunks, or you know, water storage capacity somehow. But that one, 
that one is really different. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's my favorite succulent because of the extra care it requires, but it's certainly a favorite of a lot of people who have visited my garden because they've actually been splashed by it. I loved it. I loved that video. And I loved Shauna's reaction, too, because, you know, Shauna has seen a lot of plants. And so uh, when you can get a gardener, a true gardener, to have a memorable experience like that, and I mean, even for people watching that video, it just sticks with you. That is an unbelievable visual for helping people understand succulents. Yeah. I know for my own kids, my son John was like, what's that called again? And, you know, uh, he would normally never ask that kind of a follow-up question. Oh, cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was fantastic. Are there any other standouts, you know, as you go through your succulents A to Z section, or maybe even a plant that you talked to Brian uh, where you uh-huh, were talking about, yeah, where you were talking about the different uh, nomenclature for these plants, are there a few that just kind of stand out or have a special place in your heart? Well, the ones that I included in the book, oh, it was a teeth gnashing, difficult process, Jennifer, <laughs> to winnow it down to those that we show. I mean, it, oh, it, there, there were it easily double the number of plants that I originally wanted to include. Oh, wow. But um, what was my developmental editor and simply to spare the reader being overwhelmed, I was very careful to include the best, the brightest, the most reliable, the toughest, the most interesting, the most beautiful from numerous ways of appreciating succulents. I did include more cacti than I, I had in the past. I think, you know, I'm thumbing through the book as we're talking and I'm thinking, which of these plants would I would I say was my favorite that I would recommend without reservation that has been a star performer for me and is beautiful and just trouble free. And I'm seeing page after page after succulents that that description fits. But in my own garden, there's a plant that is as beautiful as it is practical. And it is my go-to succulent, my go-to plant that if I have a gap and I need it, I need it filled, or if I just want a dependable, reliable plant that won't be invasive, it doesn't need any fussing over, I go with Aloe nobilis. And that's a that's a small aloe that is colony forming. The rosettes are about the size of your fist, maybe larger, and it's dark green and speckled with little well they look like spikes but they're not sharp. So teeth along the margins. And it turns red when stressed, meaning it's less water, maybe more cold or more heat than it would optimally want. And so you get color. You get color, the more sun you give it, the more it'll redden. It's not super fast growing, but you turn around and, you know, the, the rosette that you plopped in the ground a couple of years ago is, is now a, a nice, tight little bunch. It's great for taking cuttings of and spreading. And there's a very similar aloe 
uh, that it has more blue-gray tones to it, and it stresses to shades of oh, peach and lavender, and that's aloe brevifolia, or the short-leaved aloe. And if you look at a photo of them, you can tell one's more blue than the other. If you see them side by side, aloe brevifolia is slightly smaller, so whereas uh, aloe nobilis rosettes can get as big as if you, like your two fists together, the uh, rosettes of allobrevifolia would probably not get much larger than one fist. But those two, and, and then that gives you a lot of range in terms of color scheme because one tends toward the blue-grays and one tends toward the uh, greens and yellow-greens. And they bloom. They give you lovely flowers. And the nice thing about nobilis is that it blooms in summer when not a lot of aloes are blooming. And you can, if you grow it long enough and you spread it enough, you get a whole mass of them. You get a whole mass of flowers. And there's a street side planting of aloe nobilis in San Diego near where my son lives. And of course, I notice plants in everybody's yard. I notice that more than the houses. <laughs> and, and I noticed when, uh, when my son first moved into that house, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago, that but this cell strip, the area between the sidewalk and the curb in front of the house across the street, was planted with Alonobolus, and it was all in bloom. And that's how I can remember what month of the year he moved into that house. Oh. It was June, because that's when Alonobolus blooms. And I have noticed that patch of Alonobolus every time I visited since, and it looks the same. It just needs deadheading after the bloom, but I don't think anybody waters it. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, it's not the most ideal location because you can open your passenger door into it. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, for a health strip, what a great plant. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, and there is a picture as you were talking because I was looking, I knew there was a um, a picture of this aloe nobilis where you're talking about the difference between aloes and agaves on that page on oh, 180. Uh -huh. yeah. um, a few pages before that, on page 177, there was a picture of an agave that I have never seen before, at least not oh. pictured like this. And I actually wrote the word sunflower over it because that's what it reminds me of, the petals. Yeah. I, I just, I was so taken by it. I don't even know how you pronounce it, but it's the, the agave that's on 177. It's just a head-on yeah. shot of this yeah. beautiful agave. What can you tell us about it? Well, that's Agave Victoria Regine, named after Queen Victoria which kind of gives you a hint where it was when it was first discovered. And it is from Mexico. So I, I envision the, the botanist Q coming across this in Mexico and saying to each other, Oh, we must name this after the queen. <laughs> and taking it, you know, taking it back. But it, 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 it oh. just, it absolutely embodies everything we love about rosette succulents. Yes. It, it looks like an artichoke, but, I mean, for the symmetry of it, but it's a little flatter and broader, and it has these phenomenal white lines that outline the leaves uh, and also go into the leaves in that they outline the keel of the leaves. So if you think of a boat with a keel and how that that is kind of a raised area, 
Well, that's how the leaves stick together before they unfurl from the center of the plant. And those keels are outlined in white. And then the tips of the leaves are black. And you get this repetition of every leaf being outlined in a tight symmetry. And there is just no plant quite like it. Now, this is a really good plant for you to know about, Jennifer, because you can grow it. It won't go to 30 below. But it'll go to to 12 above and possibly even lower. So it, it's, it comes from higher elevations in Mexico. It's used to cold climates. So this is something you could have in a pot, and you'd only have to maybe move it during the worst part of the winter. And then, you know, don't let it get overwatered. But it's also known for not blooming very quickly. It'll go a good 20 years without blooming, Hmm. which is what you want in an agave because they die after they bloom. They're not cheap, but they are absolutely spectacular. And they don't get unmanageably large. The largest that a Queen Victoria agave will get well, it's probably 18 inches under ideal conditions. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they are not offsetting, so uh, you're not going to get a colony. It's, um, yeah, when you when your son wants to know what you want for Christmas, tell him you want a Queen Victoria agave. All right. Note to self. I'm, <laughs> I'm adding it to my list. I love that. The other one that caught my attention is right on the page before that, and it's this agave that looks like it's got these little white curly cues all over it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that is multifolifera, and obviously the name folifera, referring to filaments, and it is, as you might imagine, stunning when backlit. You can just imagine those translucent, hair-like white uh, fibers just glowing, and the leaves are long, narrow, and skinny, and so it's a, and they're very stiff, so it's a keep-away plant with sharp tips on the leaves. But again, it's a specimen plant. It uh, would probably be lost in an open garden, better in a pot, and positioned maybe in a sitting area where it's backlit. Now that I teased the audience just a little bit with this one page that talks about important differences between aloes and agaves, do you want to give us just the cliff notes overview of a few things that people can keep in mind, and then we'll talk about where people can find you? Okay. Well, you know, when I was in Patrick Anderson's garden doing that interview years ago that launched my whole interest in pathway succulents, I was looking at these large specimen plants, and he was referring to them by their horticultural names, aloes and agaves. And I asked a question that I'm sure a lot of people have when they're new to succulents, and that is, Gee, they look a lot alike. <laughs> you know, how can you tell the difference? They're both, uh, you know, they have these large fountain-shaped silhouettes. Some of them have long, tapered, pointed leaves that can be narrow or wide. Uh, some have leaves that curve downward somewhat. More Others are more upright. But basically, that's the silhouette. And to clarify for, for people who are new to this, The main difference, and this is what horticulturists go by, are the flowers. That's pretty much what it comes down to when you're curious about a plant. It's what's the bloom like. Agaves are monocarpic, meaning they bloom once and then they die. Aloes are perennials. They generally bloom once a year. And they send up orange 
flower spikes that are just beautiful, whereas an agave puts its life force into its flower, and it tends to be much, much larger than the plant. And then, it, and then of course, it dies. It dries out and dies. To the casual observer, one good way to tell is look at the leaf margins. The leaf margins of agaves will often have a different tissue, almost like a fingernail or horn, that is separate and distinctive from the tissue that the leaf is made out of. Now, those teeth along the leaves of agaves can be quite sharp, as well as a terminal spine. The aloes also have teeth along their leaf margins, but those teeth are softer and less menacing than those of agaves, and they are made out of the same tissue that the leaf is made out of. It's almost like the the leaf was wax and the little teeth were pulled, you know, like soft wax were pulled from that leaf tissue. Plus, aloes will have these little protuberances all over the leaf in some cases, and agaves don't. They only have them along the leaf margins. So that's a dead giveaway. Agaves have fibrous leaves. Those of aloes are gel-filled, the most famous being aloe vera. Um, Agave fiber was used by indigenous Americans to sew with. They'd sew their skins with it. They'd take the sharp tip of an agave and break it and pull it back down along the leaf to get a needle and thread because the fiber would be attached to the tip of the leaf. Oh, how clever is that? Yeah, isn't that, isn't that amazing? Yeah. So the, those are the, those are the, the defining characteristics. Uh, agaves are native to the Americas and aloes primarily to the Old World and Africa. Well, that is very helpful. Why don't we wrap up by having you share how people can get a hold of you online, where they can find you, and of course, your wonderful YouTube channel. Oh, well, absolutely. Well, you know, one of the best ways to find me is simply to Google my name, Deborah Lee Baldwin, and that's D-E-B-R-A-L-E-E Baldwin. My website is com, and that's a good place to start. I am on Instagram at Deborah L. Baldwin. I have several Facebook pages. Probably the most heavily visited is the Succulent Container Gardens page. But I also have a Deborah Lee Baldwin official page for me, and I post on other pages as well. For YouTube, my YouTube channel is Deborah Lee Baldwin. No surprise there. And uh, you can subscribe to my channel if you want to be notified whenever I release a new video, which I recommend because, uh, you know, otherwise you won't hear about it maybe until I send out my newsletter or post about it on social media. And I do have a newsletter that uh, your listeners are more than welcome to sign up for. They can do that by going to my website. I send out the newsletter whenever I'm excited about something and want to share it. So I've been sending out newsletters about the new book, uh, about new videos that I come out with, about anything I find in the world of designing with succulents that I feel is newsworthy and I'm eager to share and to let people know about. You know, as a career journalist, doing a newsletter comes to me pretty easily. So that's definitely something that people should know about. I'm pretty good about answering emails, by the way. If you have a specific question... 
uh, you can email me through my website. Jennifer, well, this has been a great interview. Well, and let's chat quickly, too, because you have a couple of book launch uh, events coming up, and I you're do. going to be at the Northwest Flower Show. Yes, yes. The Northwest Flower and Garden Show is the second largest in the United States after Philadelphia and the third largest in the world after Chelsea. And that is held in Seattle. I'm speaking at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in Seattle at the Convention Center Wednesday and Thursday, February 7th and 8th, around midday. And that's 2018. And I have two book launch events coming up, uh, one in Northern California and one in Southern. The launch of the second edition of Designing with Succulents is at the Seventh Annual Succulent Extravaganza at Succulent Gardens Nursery in Castroville. And then the Southern California launch is at the October meeting of the San Diego Horticultural Society on Monday, October 9th at 5.30, and that's going to include a vendors who have pots and plants. So it should be a wonderful event. So all of that uh, is on my website on the events page, which I keep up with and uh, keep current. A lot coming up. I think it's a fantastic treat for folks to get a chance to get to see you in person. And I can't thank you enough for talking with me today and sharing all of your wisdom and insights after 10 years plus of loving succulents and then this brand new Designing with Succulents, the second edition, but basically a brand new book for all intents and purposes. So thank you so much, Deborah, for joining me today and sharing all of this wonderful wisdom and your love for succulents. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's been a delight, truly, to talk with you. The pleasure was all mine. Well, that's it for our show today, featuring Designing with Succulents with the Queen of Succulents, Deborah Lee Baldwin. I hope you enjoyed learning about the world of succulents from Deborah. They come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. And best of all, they're low maintenance, water wise, and architectural. Quite frankly, they're as wonderful as Deborah is. And as someone who adores succulents, this show was such a treasure for me, and I hope for you too. I'm so thankful to my team at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my editor, Eric Begay, Ein Kadena, my copywriter, and David Gregerson, my project manager. Just a reminder, I'll have all the generous information that Deborah shared on the show today under the Still Growing Podcast page on my website over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. I'd like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport, Patricia Gardens in Kego Harbor, Michigan and is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was a guest of the show back in episode 553, where she talked all about incorporating more native plants into your landscape. 
This week, I plan to head on over to my nursery to see if I can catch any last-minute end-of-season deals, and I hope some of them will be succulents. So if you'd like to join me, head on over to your local garden center, and let's do some shopping. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. 